Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Roan Apparel. Roan is men's premium fitness apparel and activewear brand that provides gear for the modern man who demands modern style, comfort, and quality. You may have heard I have taken up golf. Sorry, America. Sorry, all my municipal course golfers who I am screaming for at. But even if I'm not playing well, I look damn good because I'm rocking Roan Apparel when I'm out there on the course. The design is sophisticated with minimal logos and everything is crafted using luxury tech fabrics of premium quality. But if you don't love your gear, don't worry. They offer free returns and exchanges, so you have nothing to lose. Not to mention, all orders ship free. It's time to upgrade, whether you're on the golf course, running, just chilling. Go to Roan.com, R-H-O-N-E.com, and enter promo code WATCH at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Look better while you golf. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am the editor at TheRigger.com and joining me in the studio, this is the water, this is the well, this is Andy Greenwald! You know, longtime listeners of this podcast are familiar with your trademark introductions. I know. And they often guess. What's he here with you? I love it. This is the new space. (laughs) They often wager guesses as to what it will be yeah. based on the week's pop culture. Or there was not pop a, culture. There was not a lot of variance this time. I want you to know that I predicted this. Yeah, you didn't even blink when I started doing that. I knew. I loved it. I also didn't want to interrupt you. Andy Greenwald, welcome to The Watch. Oh, thanks, host of The Watch. Um, All right, very formal today. Guys, if you live in Los Angeles and you don't have a pressing family emergency on July 11th. Generally, pressing family emergencies develop later than Two weeks Your out. attendance is expected at Largo, yeah. where we will be doing Talk the Thrones Live with Mallory Rubin and Jason do, Concepcion. This, do, do the Ed Norton. I feel like Ed Norton needs everyone in Los Angeles who's a Game of Thrones fan <laughs> to stand up and watch. I need you to clear the room. Yeah. Get me a panic. Here's the thing. There will be special guests. You get to see me, Andy, Jason, and Mallory talk about Game of Thrones. Two of the four people know what they're talking about in that group. Mm-hmm. Could be any two at any time. It's going to be a lot of fun. I really encourage you guys to come out July 11th at Largo. I, you can buy tickets through SeatGeek. We will tweet out the information. We want to see your happy, smiling faces. Yeah, we want to mingle. Yeah. I also... Peak TV isn't anything without its audience. I also want um, people to know that I believe John Bryan is producing the show. Yeah. I, I, I want Didn't, classic, did I forget to mention that? Classic, playing all of Vultures. I want classic Largo vibes. Yeah. I want I want Pat Oswalt doing stand up in Fiona between Apple. Amy Mann. <laughs> is that weird that I have nostalgia for like early Largo dinner theater? I think it's moved. It's not even in the same place. Now. It's a bigger know. space. Yeah. So we will not be serving dinner. No. Did you I'm ever sorry. have dinner at the old Largo? No, I didn't. A lot of spaghetti. I didn't. I love yeah. the halibut. Um, Greenwald. Hey Ben. We're going to hey, talk buddy. obviously about one of the most uh, transgressive boundary pushing. Uh, thought-provoking through the back of my head because a demon homeless man has my skull crushed That's in right. his That's right, Ray Donovan is back. <laughs> it's on the same network as I Ray know. Donovan. I love the opening where they're like, if you like this head fuckery, <laughs> why not watch John Voight yeah. ham it up? Here's William Macy drinking castor oil. Just up there, just drinking. Okay, uh, is it castor oil or castrol oil? Uh, castor oil is a yeah. thing that... It has, it's like ipic, it's like a thing that makes ipecac. Like, ipecac, like yeah, makes yeah. you have a reaction. Oil. Okay, we're gonna leave that in. There's petrol, 
There's Castro. There's ca- there's Fidel gotcha. Castro. Yeah. I'll get you. Okay. Did you read about what they did to the Buena Vista Social Club documentary sequel? So much, so much stuff happened in the movie business. Yeah, that's a good segue. We're going to talk about Twin Peaks. We're going to talk about Glow. Glow! So excited. But first, we're going to just run through a little bit of these hot Hollywood tabloid headlines because I personally cannot get enough of this Han Solo story. I don't know why. Yeah. It's just so exciting. I, I love all the players. I love all the like the little side like stories that are coming out of it. If you, I love reading between the lines. Look, last week... We talked a little bit of the Han Solo stuff. We started talking about it. Yeah. And uh, Sean Fennessy was here. My child was in the room as well, so we were a little distracted. Um, you didn't give the people your biggest take that you had, you had previewed I, I did. Me. You just kept—I think you had to keep getting up. I was sort of—I sort of gave it. You gave it in a polite way. Yeah. But you are team Kathy Kennedy. My my team, I didn't. I don't think these dudes were right for the job in the first place. Okay. I don't think that if you're like Catherine, Kathleen Kennedy was like, I want to make what essentially amounted to Rio Bravo. I want to make like a western with Frederick Remington painting primary colors, and it's going to be cool. Yeah. But like this is the same line that we heard before Rogue One, where she was like, "Let's do zero dark." Like where Gareth Edwards was right. like, well, "I'm owning zero dark thirty, but in Star Wars, I want to make a well, war movie." Lord Miller are like. What if it was Star Wars, but also Men in Black? Yeah. What if we took this great script and didn't use it? <laughs> so, look, I, I I think what they do works for what they he, do. He, here, here's the latest news that was in the dueling stories in the trades today. Yes, with different angles. Different angles. Um, the main takeaway appears to be that the problems were more systemic. I mean, obviously they were more systemic. Obviously, this didn't just happen. Um, among the people being thrown under the largest school bus bus in the galaxy. Our star Alden Ehrenreich, yes. who's accused of not being good at acting. Yes, and they had bringing to hire... a, quote, Ace Ventura-esque sensibility yeah. to the character. Interesting. <laughs> Understand that that when, uh, I believe when the first Star Wars film was released, Alden Ehrenreich Albeit, was... I did read that on a website called Star Wars with a Z dot net. When the first Star Wars was released, A New Hope, Alden Ehrenreich, I believe, was negative 15 years old. Yeah. So his connection to the source material may be suspect. Okay, Anyone but it's who not saw... like he has to go into no. the sept to study the this scrolls. Is, this is not playing Daniel Plainview, okay? <laughs> like, this is not that. He wears a cool jacket and he shoots lasers yeah. in space. Like, yeah, let's, yeah. let's. Also, anyone who saw Hail Caesar knows this This kid is good. This kid is funny and talented, right. so I'm not buying that. So we've got he, a... He, here's a rap story that's basically like Aaron Reich was a bit of the problem, right? That, yeah. that, that they were concerned that they hired a... Um, they hired an acting coach for him in mm. production. It is not uncommon to have an acting coach work with someone before or maybe in the early stages mm. of production, but to bring someone on late in the game, like a you know, it's, it's like switching caddies on the ninth hole. Wow. Yeah, it's that's where really, we're at. It really goes <laughs> um, deep with you. Now. I've never had a caddy. Uh, so that's one side of things, right? The other side of things that was reported in the Hollywood Reporter is that. Um, Lawrence Kasdan wrote this great script. It, it, they did a very good job at talking about how great this Lawrence Kasdan script was very early on. I remember there was, was like a slash there. film post sure. that was just like, this is the best Star Wars script. And apparently, Lord and Miller, according to this story, were doing things like shouting out one-liners like it was the 40-year-old fucking virgin and yeah, being that, like, try this one, try try this one. And it, it like That is be- the Apatow, Adam McKay style. You shout alts, you yeah. find the jokes as you're filming. Right. That's why also those movies tend to not be like 
entirely coherent dramatic experience. Let me be clear with you. The third act of Trainwreck featuring LeBron James, Marva Albert, and Amy Schumer becoming a good person because she gives her booze to a homeless man worked perfectly. <laughs> That's not the kind of thing you can find in right. the editing room. Right. That's scripted. So the story in The Reporter is that um, daily, Kazan started seeing, seeing dailies. Wait, can I just say my favorite part of all these stories? Yeah, yeah. Lawrence Kasdan, just eminence grease of Hollywood, apparently was watching dailies on his laptop or whatever from his home in Pacific Palisades. Yeah. This dude's life has really changed in the last five years. <laughs> I'm not, this is. Th- it's no shots. No, this guy he is. He wrote Dreamcatcher. This guy though. is like <laughs> super talented. Yeah. Always has been. Yes. Has been involved in the Star Wars movies from the beginning. Raiders. The big chill. Yeah. I mean, this guy makes movies. Grand fucking canyon. Yeah. Kevin Klein discovers Look, what's really important Steve in life. Steve Martin wets himself because he gets shot. Get me? Oh, I see. Sorry, let's come back to that. Look, I'm seriously no shots. This guy's terrific, but it's interesting that for all of the attempts for Lucasfilm to be like it's still called Lucasfilm, but George is gone and it's new blood, and they're bringing in you know a, a, for for a new era of Star Wars movies, they're bringing in new talent. The person who has emerged in many ways as the most crucial member of the team Kasdan. is Kasdan, and the amount of power he seems to be exerting, or that they keep begging him to take on is really something. Yeah, we talked about this on Thursday. There is a recurring theme throughout these Star Wars movies, and there was a recurring theme, and still to some extent is, if you look at David DeVorne leaving Black Panther, there is an initial interest on the side of the studio and the producers to work with quote-unquote edgy new talent with a distinctive vision and a distinctive voice. And you bring them in, and then you need them to start playing ball in terms of Chris Miller. Like, I I don't mind Lord Miller's style. Like, that works for them. But it's not a Lego movie. You can't fix it. Like, you're not drawing into it. So if those guys decide to throw out a line that could alter Star Wars canon, that's... I I think one thing we're seeing here is that these movies are too interconnected. You know, somebody well, on our Slack today was like, yeah. I think Cam was actually saying, like, I just wanted, like, a cool Han Solo movie with jokes and Wookiees. But they can't do that. It has to have some sort of tissue I, stretching I, out. I think that's absolutely part of it. But I also think that the real divide here is between the two adjectives you use, which is new and edgy. Those are not always the same thing. That's um, very, very smart. What I mean, Thanks, man. Yeah. What I mean to say is, who comes in to fix these movies? Tony Gilroy, Ron Howard. Old hands. These guys Safe pair hands. are... major talents. Yes. These are not um, hacks by any stretch of the imagination. Um, What they need are people who know how to make big budget movies or write big budget scripts. That's what I was saying. Like, I was like, this, these movies probably need to find their David Yates for as much as I want them to be like Ryan Johnson exploring his looper verse. Like I, I know that, but let's talk about, you mentioned Ryan Johnson. I'm glad you did because one of the other takeaway lines that was worth, worth repeating uh, from these trade stories was Ryan Johnson appears to have had no speed bumps whatsoever no. delivering The Last Jedi. And the reason is Ryan Johnson has been writing and directing movies, gradually scaling up in his movies. He's also written the movie that he's directing. That's exactly right. But he was allowed to do it because he, 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 he basically staged up to do that. You know, he he started making a small movie like yeah, Brick. He was, wasn't coming off cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Nor is was he coming off uh, the Book of Henry, Jurassic World, and um, you know the safety not guaranteed. safety not guaranteed. Yeah, I would have real concerns about Episode Nine unless the book on on Trevorrow now is just he he will he's competent. Yeah, he will he will he's a hole puncher because in, and again this is completely said unseen of anything. But this is this is what we're talking about. It's 
a, a young filmmaker with complete control over vision. I mean, that's what like Shane Carruth, right? Like that's like yeah. you're not going to hire him to do Star Wars though because he's not going to do it the way you want him to do it. These people are trying to have it both ways, and I think that's where you fall. That's where this stuff falls apart. Um, I think it was it's it's just been fascinating to read all these stories about the production because you can see which ones are coming sort of from the Lord Miller side of things. There's yeah. a when it, there's a piece in the Hollywood Reporter story about. When the crew was told that Ron Howard would be taking over, they broke out into applause. That's that's a shitty leak. That's yeah, a weird yeah. thing. So it's it's been it's been a rough week for that franchise. And one of the things that, you know, I I think that this is probably I would say across like consensus most popular Star Wars character. Yeah. So uh, it'll be fascinating mm. to see whether they are able to get this right. And what's not just the most popular Star Wars character, I would argue the most crucial Star Wars character because the biggest problem with the prequels yes. wasn't that the Jedi were intergalactic tax collectors. That they were not funny. Is that there was no Han Solo. Yeah. You need someone being like, for real? This Are is you, stupid. This yeah. is stupid. Yeah, you right. need that. And you know that's, that's the key to almost any adventure storytelling is you need the sarcastic voice of the audience being like, really? Are you sure you're going to do that now? There's also, um, before we move on, there's like this incredible thread that goes through almost all of the stories. And I really, really like Gareth Edwards, his movies a lot. And I thought Rogue One was really cool in a lot of ways. But every one of these stories is like, there's like, sources say Gareth Edwards is a Jamoke who let Kathleen Kennedy suplex his movie in front of him (laughs) while Tony Gilroy sang Real American. It said, said, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for yeah. doing May that. May I have some more? That's sir. what's so weird. Yeah. I mean, where they're like Chris, you know, like Lord Miller just didn't get it. Yeah. Everything that is released, whether it's released officially in a press release or leaked semi-officially to the Hollywood Reporter or Variety, is is dipped in a a sealant coat of bullshit. Yeah, I mean that's true. So this thing that when they release joint statements and the thing in this piece about how Ron Howard felt concerned about taking over the franchise but has been trading emails with Lord Miller and they've been lovely. I yeah. mean whatever. I Ron Howard by all accounts really is that guy. Really is a nice guy. I'm sure he did have concerns. Right. You know, I'm sure those There's concerns There's just so many great parallels between the actual story but, of Star Wars of like rebellions and empire yeah. and like these yeah. like edgy like these voices who are trying to like make themselves but, heard versus like the Disney studio system that is like, look, this is a billion dollar industry I, we are working. Billions. I just think that you are if you want to play in the sandbox, you are likely going to get flattened and you're going to look up few months later and say what the hell happened yeah. what did i what did i just do what did i just take part in um you know and, and, and to me the saddest part of that story and i'm not saying the saddest part of the story because lord and miller are the next cohen brothers was that well they could always fall back into directing the flash because that's open for them right it's like wow they'll be fine those guys have like 900 shows on Andy, you know, there were, this is a really good week for Hollywood trades. <laughs> you love being in the biz. Um, a couple weeks ago, you kind of threw out mm-hmm. a little bit of a, a mm-hmm. Greenwald bat signal. What is your bat signal? Do you know? Uh, you mean what does it look like? Yeah, like what's your icon, your like your your sort of your symbol? Wow. Um, I feel like that's best left. I mean, what what would you think it is? I, I, I would imagine that I it's, very, it's very faint because I don't <laughs> send it out very often and very few people see it. Um. The Hollywood Reporter last night, after with the season finale of Silicon Valley, yeah, put up an interview with T.J. Miller. Now, yeah. a couple weeks ago, you had asked basically for this. Yeah. You were like, if anybody knows the real deal yep. behind T.J. Miller leaving this show, holler. Yeah. And you didn't need to do that because T.J. Miller is like, by I'm way, happy to share. By the way, tip line, zero, <laughs> inbox zero on yeah. that. So thanks a lot, sources. Um, 
This is one of the great Q and A's I've seen in in a long can, time. Can we begin at the end where it says the the above interview has been edited and condensed for clarity? Can't believe that. Good luck with that. THR. Here are some of my favorites. So basically, T.J. Miller was like, if you if you subscribe to his version of reality. He um, was asked to take a lesser role on the show to cycle well, down to like was offered three lesser, to five episodes because role. he was so busy. And they were like, hey, man, you're amazing. Why don't you work less? Or, or, or they were like, you seem real busy. Yeah, right. And he was like, cool, I'm off. I'm off the show now. Forever. Yeah. And, and that, we'll never um, come back. He seemed to have quite a there's a dis- distant a disconnect between what he he wanted and what Alec Berg who I think ran the show for a few years is, but remains is, the is still the showrunner and Clay Tarver who was in the band Chavez who yes, I love he was. who was also working on the show and Mike Judge who's sort of in charge of the show and uh, TJ Miller claims that Mike Judge and Clay Tarver were like please stay and that Alec Berg he just doesn't like Alec Berg he straight up just says I don't like Alec yeah. there are so many great quotes in this I wanted to read you a few yeah um when asked about like sort of you know what are you going to do with the people who loved you on this show mm-hmm. and he's just like although that makes for a terrible time at the airport because everybody high fives me grabbing your ass on the way to your fucking mm. plane to Omaha Nebraska to do stand up comedy these people want to know quote do you really want to walk away from what many would say is the cushiest situation in television the platinum age of television mm. which i don't know if is it like his shot at Golden Age being over, or he just thinks it's that's what we called the Golden Age. I think he's just squeezed another mind grape. I also really, really liked. I'm doing a lot as a public public servant and jester to the American public. Yeah, as Kristen Stewart always says, it's (laughs) worldwide. It's worldwide. FYI, guys. I googled quote. Did you Kristen Stewart close quote. Quote, it's worldwide, close quote. First yeah. result, this fucking interview. <laughs> That's the She's, only time that has ever come up. First of all, false. Yeah. She's just never said it in public. She says this on their group Slack of talented, She's misunderstood, in the WhatsApp. misunderstood yeah. geniuses. Yeah. Um, anyway, th- th- when you get a chance to read this, it's Hollywood it, Reporter. We can read it out. It's it, just it, an it's, incredible it's, interview. It's very rare. A moment ago, I said things are dipped in bullshit. This is clearly not, except it's just soaked within its own subjective bullshit. Yeah. Um, one takeaway is that Zach Woods, apparently sweetest guy in the world, great yeah, improviser. Greatest improviser. Kumail comes off great. Yeah. Um, pretty much everyone comes he off great. He puts middle ditch in the middle of a ditch, though. Yeah. He buries him in that but ditch. But I, I mean, like... There are a lot of comments about how well... Imagine, to be completely candid, imagine being, having to deal with this every day, though. Well, I think most... Look, I mean, let's also be honest. Most TV shows, certainly sitcoms uh, with comedians or big egos in the cast, this is what it is going to work. These people are not friends. Very rarely they're friends. Sometimes they are. But generally, you have competing egos, and the, the job, and the very difficult job of people, the people like Alec Berg and Clay Tarver and Mike Judge have, a very well-paying job, is to manage those egos right. and deal with it. Um you know, so for T.J. Miller to come out and say, I've never wanted to be a star, unlike Thomas Middleditch, who wants to be the star of the show, and now he can finally be the star of the show. I mean, it makes for great copy. Yeah. Uh, the truth is, none of this really matters. I think Silicon Valley is probably better with him on it because he's very funny. Um, it's a weird choice, but he seems dedicated to making weird choices. And the only thing that really had me scratching my head in this interview is when he's just like, finally, I'm free to hang glide into Paris for the premiere of the Emoji movie, which is going to be the next funny thing. He seems to be uh, very appreciative of his role in destroying like American intellectual culture. So <laughs> good for him. Uh, I did not get a chance to see this episode of Silicon Valley, so we can report back at a later date about that. L- last thing before we get to TV. Yeah, sure. 
How do you feel about the smoking wreckage of the Transformers franchise? Oh, yeah. Um, sheesh. You know, I haven't seen this one yet. Wow, you're missing a lot, apparently. Um, uh, well, apparently I am. Apparently it has already achieved a certain cult status mm-hmm. among people who are just like, Anthony Hopkins is great in this, and it, it it's like completely nonsensical. Stanley and... Tucci plays Merlin. So, I, I'm in, but I just haven't had a chance to go yet. And now it's like... It, this is this is going to be. I would like to have Sean come back on to talk about this, the yes. box office whisperer, because it does seem like this is a movie made exclusively for foreign markets now. Yeah, and Sean had a good piece about that. Yeah, um, about how the, well, there aren't that kind. They're not going to make good bad movies anymore because movies just have to sort of exist, mm-hmm. um, which is so demeaning. <laughs> have you seen any to, Transformers to movies? people in the other parts of the world that are, I guess are still paying for these tickets? Uh, I've seen very, very noisy bits okay. over time. Did you ever cable. see the Shia LaBeouf video where he's like, go, 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 go? It's like every time he says go in these yeah. movies. It's a good video. I was it's cool YouTube clip. I was communicating with a, a director uh, oh my that God. we're friendly with. Sources say. I know. Uh, who we respect as a director. Okay. Who, who basically blames the wreckage of modern cinema at the uh, adrenalized feet of Michael Bay. Basically, he's responsible for most of the evil Damn. in the multiplex. Hard to disagree. Particularly, well, well, he also predicted that you would say that. <laughs> That's true. Um, I wanted to just get your thoughts on that because I think that there is a proud, proud ignorance and incoherence in his movies. Um that has only escalated. I can't tell if you're being if that's a compliment or not. Well, this is the argument <laughs> about Michael Bay that I do think I think you can say has infected blockbuster filmmaking because one of the things we always say about these franchises is that at a certain point they just devolve into nonsense punching. Uh huh. Um, I don't think that actually happens that much in uh, non Transformers Michael Bay movies. Oh, like his quiet films? No, but I like, don't think that uh, Michael Bay's Summer Hours Rock, one for them, one for us. The Rock and Armageddon. Don't have a lot of like, and now two robots will fight on the sun. No, Armageddon was just about a man literally fucking an asteroid to death by planting a nuclear bomb inside. No, it was of it. about fathers and sons and daughters. What's man. the difference? It was about animal crackers. <laughs> um, I, I I thought that was worthwhile. I mean, my my feeling about Michael Bay is that when Bad Boys came out mm-hmm. when we were in high school or seniors mm-hmm. in high school, I guess yeah, that was a very important film. Sure, for me, yeah, I thought it was dazzling and fun. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, Leone, taking, the, way, great the way you're saying it, it's like I saw I saw it at Film Forum. Yeah, I saw it at the Quad Cinema <laughs> yeah. after, um, after an early afternoon yee yee. But here's the thing: <laughs> I just feel here's my thought about Michael Bay, and then you can defend him if you want. For okay. Fun. I just feel like, from what I gather, Crystal Meth is fun for people the first time. That's my feeling about Michael Bay. You know what I mean? It just feels like it's just kind of a cheap, ugly high that uh-huh. works the first time and doesn't age well. That that's my feeling about it, and I, it makes me glad <laughs> right. that people seem to have moved past it because he just seems pretty despicable all around, and I cheer his failure. I How about that? Uh, really enjoy his movies. I think he's one of the great visual stylists, like in terms of um, wow. being able to in create terms of American flags rustling in the wind. I am not a really moral movie viewer. You know that. I wasn't saying that. In a political sense, although I would—that's a whole other conversation. Right. Um, I'm not—I don't really ascribe a lot of. I, I understand what you're saying. You're not moral on the links either, from what I gather. <laughs> no, I'm a savage. <laughs> um, gosh, you know, I mean, I don't, it's hard to—it's hard to. He's spent so much of this decade on these Transformers movies. He's made five of yeah, them. Yeah, I know, and the one before They're that about toys. was the Island, which was not that good. But I really, uh, you know, I, I think Pain and Gain. Is a different kind of movie. I I don't know. I I, I think that 
it would take a long time to sort of explain it, but like in terms of directing set pieces, is in terms of communicating visceral energy through camera work, through cutting. He's incredibly groundbreaking, and in a lot of ways, like a lot of his moves have been stolen by other people, like Zack Snyder, and 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 the way in which you can <laughs> almost make like I'm not saying that in a good or bad way. I'm yeah. saying the value neutral. Like I just think that you're right. He has his style has permeated blockbuster filmmaking in a way that it's hard to recognize the value in the original. Right. Um, but I think that he is. Um, an incredible visual stylist. I mean, you know, and I, I just think that he chooses to make shitty material. But I think when he's working with stuff that's like right at the right level of like not too self serious, has a bunch of good actors having a good time, and allows him to do insane shit like have F 16s fly over Nicolas Cage as he stabs himself with an anti poison vaccine, like that's dope. I. I enjoyed that movie at the time. The I, Rock is awesome. I just the Rock say, is a really good movie. I my experience watching The Rock, which I feel like I've talked about on this podcast before, at the uh, Marple Ten movie theater, yeah. outside of Philly, uh, matinee with some women who really felt invested in the film to the degree of speaking out loud, like really speaking back yeah, to the yeah. film, and their commentary during the Sean Connery haircut scene lives with me to this day. <laughs> <laughs> they really had an opinion about the, and I must say, not disclosed in the script, uh, but about the sexuality of the person doing the haircutting oh. of Sean Connery. Oh, interesting. They had a lot of thoughts about his proclivities, his background, his interests, and they shared them very loudly. <laughs> okay. Um, so I remember that. So that's my thought about Michael Bay films. Um, All right. Let's la- take- Wait, last thing. Oh, gosh. About this. Remember when we were talking with Sean last week and we talked about the experience of watching Jackass 2 or Borat and feeling like it was something so like hysterically new? Mm-hmm. I wonder what is – I was going to ask you, and I think I have an answer, about what is next for action filmmaking because the Michael Bay thing, as you're right, has has filtered in. It's 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 now part of the culture and it's been done. The Yeah, I think the, that the, the shaky, language the, that he introduced actually became the language of superhero movies. The shaky cam um, mm-hmm. of Paul Greengrass has become kind of overdone. And it's just sort of been factored into other people's filmmaking. Is the next one, and I wish it were so, is it Edgar Wright? And we'll we'll see Baby Driver. I don't think anyone else can do that. But just in terms of seeing a kinetic camera movement in action and, you know, seeing something new in that genre, is what is next? I think it was the newest thing was Gareth uh, Evans, who directed the the two Raid movies. Oh, yeah. Okay. And... That's like uh, the just the most extreme version of it. I don't know how those movies are legal to be made. Um, I don't know how anyone survived making them. Yeah, you know, it's just like watching. I don't know. It's it's a those movies are the most extreme action movies I can remember seeing. What's next for the genre? I think that there will automatically be like you know. I think that in some ways I don't necessarily call Logan a action movie, but the way in which Logan dealt with action set pieces and the drama and the action and 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 the the drama within the action right. as like almost a western with these sort of very still mm. uh vistas and kind of was for the most part a very clear clearly told movie i do think that there might be a desire or yearning for clarity mm-hmm. um which is not michael bay's forte <laughs> in the transformers movies so right. we'll see I think, I think that could be it. Okay, finally, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Yes. We're going to come back and talk about Twin Peaks and Glow. Hey, guys. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Spotify. Did you know 
that the watch is available on Spotify. I can't believe it. I got mad playlists for you, but now I got mad podcasts for you. Andy and I have always been talking about Spotify, where we got our playlists for your barbecues, for the Meet Me in the Bathroom book, whatever. It's just really cool to finally be on the service. It's my it's my favorite music service. Yes, the streaming service that you know and love for music is also fully loaded with podcasts, and you can hear the watch and all a bunch of other podcasts from the Ringer family. Find us in the podcast section within the Browse tab when you're using Spotify on mobile or just by searching the watch. While you're there, click to follow us and have your new episodes delivered right into your Spotify library. Head to Spotify.com slash podcasts for more. That's Spotify.com slash podcasts. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you are like me and you are not so great at planning ahead, I've got great news for you. There is an awesome app called Hotel Tonight that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute. It sounds counterintuitive, but unlike flights, hotel rates usually get cheaper at the last minute, and Hotel Tonight helps hotels sell their unsold rooms, allowing them to pass those deals along to you. These aren't last resort places. They're actually cool top-rated hotels that you would actually want to stay in. And with so many awesome partner hotels in a ton of different countries, Hotel Tonight can help you find a great hotel almost anywhere. It's the perfect thing for a spontaneous getaway or finally going on that trip that you want to take for such a long time. I know personally that, you know, if I ever want to take a staycation in L.A., I want to get out to the beach or whatever, I just jam hotel tonight. I'm like, let's do this. Ten seconds, three taps and a swipe. Even though the app's name is Hotel Tonight, you can book up to a week in advance. And all it takes, ten seconds, three taps and a swipe. Get in on these killer last minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. All right, Andy, we are back. Um, Last night, I think, was, you know... It's hard because now that everything is so uh, kind of fractured, like I don't think that there is like the, the, we don't have like the monocultural conversation that I, I feel like we Not for did a couple more for, weeks. For, yeah, right. Thrones is back. Um, that we had say four or five years ago, or when Thrones is on, or whatever. Um, but to the extent that there is one, and that is, to the extent that people have hung with this show through a couple of weeks of real like idiosyncratic television, mm-hmm. we were somewhat if you want to call it a reward, we were rewarded last night with really one of the most breathtaking things I can ever remember being broadcast on a f- on my television. Twin Peaks. Yeah. You're talking about Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am so excited to talk about this. I did want to start by saying something b- bigger because we're going to talk about Glow also, which is the new uh, show on Netflix that premiered on Friday. And the combination, I watched episodes three and four of Glow last night and I watched episode, I think it's eight, it's eight. of Twin Peaks. And I went to bed so happy, so like high on the possibilities of TV as a medium. Because one of the things that I've been sensing um, in the last year or so, and I say this as a consumer and fan, and also you know attempting to work behind the scenes as well, there does seem to be a real um, collision course between doing the traditional things that TV has always done well and doing them well, or finding kind of a new way to sing the same songs, mm-hmm. right? And breaking ground mm-hmm. and being groundbreaking. And, you know, my favorite show of this year still is probably The Young Pope, which couldn't give a shit about TV, basically, or the conventions of it. So I may be a hypocrite by saying this, but I found the combination of these shows so thrilling in two completely contradictory directions that it made me feel very excited about the health of it. Because mm-hmm. Glow, and we'll talk about this second, um, is instantly and brilliantly such a celebration of everything that we love TV for but 
updated to a framework and a um, context that feels contemporary, mm-hmm. even though it is itself a period piece. By episode three, you're like, hey, my pals are back. I can't wait to see what my pals do. I mean, that is, that's always TV. That's Cheers. That's MASH. But yet we're watching something that is um, strikingly feminist, strikingly intelligent in terms of its emotional delivery and um, content, and you know, binging on Netflix and about wrestling in the eight, lady wrestling in the 80s. And then in Twin Peaks, we have this hour that is more out there than most cinema um, and works brilliantly on a number of levels because we can, and I, I, you know, you tell me how you want to talk about this because we can talk about it just as a pure, as pure art because I think it functions that way, as pure cinematic art. But it's also an origin story for an old yeah, character. Yeah, that's what I was going to talk about. Yeah. We can talk about how the reason Twin Peaks and David Lynch gets away with this, as, you know, as if it's like as if he's a bank robber. I don't even like that terminology. Is everything that he does on Twin Peaks, and honestly, I would argue in his movies, but you, you could, you know, maybe maybe he lost you with the rabbits in Inland Empire or whatever. But certainly within the season of Twin Peaks, operates on two levels. The one level is what the fuck? What am I seeing? What is he doing to me? Why? And the other level is. Oh well, there's an evil spirit. Yeah, Noel Murray had a piece on the time in the Times. There's been some really great writing. Noel did a great piece. Sean Collins wrote a great piece for Rolling Stone. Allison wrote a great piece for The Ringer about this episode. But one thing that Noel got out was this idea that he was like, I know that I might just be in the in the Twin Peaks Canyon right now, mm-hmm. and like I'm just so immersed in this. But that episode didn't seem that opaque to me. That's the br- that's the brilliance. So of I think it. that there's a degree, there's a difference between demanding and challenging. And nonsensical, and you—we basically experienced um, an atomic unearthing of an elemental evil, mm-hmm. and a a birth of a counterbalancing good, hopefully, or mm-hmm. for the sake of the people on the show, I guess. If that's my read of it, is vaguely correct. Yes. Told while Threnody for the victims of Hiroshima is playing, and we're traveling through the heart of a. Of, of an atomic explosion. Side note: that music that was playing—that's yeah. essentially what my father would be listening to when I would really when I would like. Remember, remember, like a couple times you'd like drop me off after we'd be hanging out in Philly or whatever. He would be listening. He to would him. be awake at like twelve thirty a.m. That's what would be playing in my home. That is my. <laughs> so that is like okay. It felt very familiar to That's me. Why you like pop music? It was like yeah. It was basically like uh, that was my uh, uh, rosebud. You but, know, we 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 spent a lot of time over this last year or so, especially talking about like Westworld, talking about leftovers. How are you know? What is happening in this mm-hmm. show? What is what and, and and evaluating how showrunners choose to um, tip hands, leave clues, mm-hmm. uh, stick landings for lack. I hate that mm-hmm. phrase now, but you know, tie up loose ends. And you know, I was I was watching that the explosion scene last night, and I was thinking back to the week before of David Lynch whistling in front of the atomic explosion and mm-hmm. it just becomes kind of clear to me that the blue rose cases are based around the blue something. rose cases being gordon cole the whatever he is deputy head of the fbi's symbol for cases that are otherworldly spiritual that yeah. relate to the black lodge right uh, and i don't know i just it it gave me an overwhelming sense of calm because i i was just like 
He's it's it's just so gratifying to know that someone is so good at making also, something. He, he, Does that make any yes, sense? Yes. Here's the thing you have to remember about David Lynch. He's not kidding. Yeah. He loves 1950s things. He loves good and evil. He made a movie about a man riding a tractor. There was not a subtext to that, right? And so people think he's mocking or meta or undercutting or the messing sort of, around the 1950s veneer. This is of just good like girl. clearing off, he, like clearing out all the stuff that he's he been kind of thinking about. Believes but, in good and evil, yeah. in a very primal kind of way, and always has. Dale Cooper is the ultimate Boy Scout, you know, and and Bob is this embodiment of evil. That's always been the show. And Noel Murray mentions this in his piece in, in a way, and I, I think it's worth saying again. You can you can watch this show and say an evil spirit was born from the nuclear test and then inhabited a good guy, and then the good guy, good guy had to fight his way back to win. But what a boring way to look at it. We've seen that story. We've never seen it told this way. Yeah. But you can do that. That is that is the guardrail as he descends down into Dante's Inferno here with the storytelling. Right. So there's there's a couple things worth talking about. One is... I do want to give this show and to give David Lynch and Mark Frost an enormous amount of credit for a very old-fashioned TV thing, which is you got to make do, right? Like the thing about TV that has always interested me is that it's imperfect. You can't get it right or you can't have everything work out, so you got to adjust. This season, this improbable return season, has been marred by so much, um, by so many uh, uh, things outside of their control. The force of evil, Killer Bob, was played by a set decorator named Frank Silva who died in the 90s. He is not available to be in the show, so they've had to reconsider how they will portray him. They've used his face, right? They've um, the same thing. They didn't. The Michael J. Anderson who played the little man either didn't want to come back or wasn't available, so they created that weird talking tree. Michael Onkin didn't want to come back, so Robert Forster is there playing his brother, and he has these long phone conversations with the character who's not there. They're making do. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's this deep well of humanity because some other people, a weird number of actors actually, passed away since they filmed their parts. Catherine Coulson, who played the log lady, Warren Frost, who played uh, Dr. Hayward, and uh, Miguel Ferrer, who played uh, who plays Albert and is probably still going to be in it more. There are so many things that are just like, let's get this done and figure out the best way to do it that I find very heartwarming. It seems very old-fashioned to me. Then let's look at the nuts and bolts of what we saw last yeah, night. Sure. Okay. Then we should get into the art of it. For people who watched, and I recommend you do, it's available on Showtime, the prequel movie, we met uh, David Bowie's character, yeah, Philip Yeah, I really want to ask you about this. Yeah. So um, I love Firewalk with me, mm-hmm. but I wanted to ask you as somebody who read the book that is sort of the connective tissue. I've read all the books. And can you tell me, <laughs> can, for, so talk to me like yeah. I'm a baby here. Explain Philip, because Philip is also somebody yes. that Ray calls yes. in the car when And apparently Evil Cooper Dale... had been in touch with Philip. Okay. So what we learned in the movie was that Philip Jeffries, played by David Bowie, was an FBI agent under Gordon Cole's c- control. They had like come up together, right? And, and apparently, I think he was a little older, but he had been investigating similar cases and he had gone missing. He appears basically unstuck in time um, in Philadelphia to tell a story. And the story he basically tells him is that he says he found them. And when he's talking about them, he's talking about these evil spirits. He's talking about Bob and Mike. And they li- he says they lived above a convenience store. In last night's episode, we saw a convenience store, a, a haunted, disturbing convenience store that was apparently in the blast zone of this nuclear thing. And that there they collect people's pain and sorrow. And he then vanished and blinked out of existence. Uh, so we be- he's been referred to. He's been around. 
The, he's come up a couple of times in this series. Which is amazing because, once again, he's passed away. So mm-hmm. he won't be in it, but he is haunting it. it you, David Lynch is not contemptuous of, this, of the canon that he did create. You know, this is all part of it. Um, so what we're seeing here is this larger mythology. In the cut flashbacks to the convenience store in the movie, there are people, including character actor Jurgen Prochnow, who I didn't even remember yeah. was in it, as weird bearded figures sitting behind Bob, and I believe Mike is in that scene. Uh, and in the credits of the film, they're listed as the woodsmen. We now learn, as of last night, that the truly disturbing, and let me say, I have not been this kind of scared and unsettled since I was 15 years old watching the original series as I was when one of these woodsmen walked up behind uh, the Air Force woman in the South Dakota yeah. uh, uh, morgue last week. That sort of slow approach that reminded me of like The Shining, you know, the bear suit in The Shining, where it's just, that's just something scary and you have to look at it. These woodsmen seem to be, um, their role has been increased, I think probably because Frank Silva is not alive, but they seem to be harbingers of this evil or associates of this evil, and they come to where it exists. Or, or, and so they brought this evil Cooper back to life. They brought, they restored him. They were birthed from this atomic explosion. They live in the convenience store. So that's basically the source of all evil. Right. And I think that Noel, Noel Murray lays this out pretty well in his piece, that what we saw was the giant, who has always been a sort of alarm bell for good. He warned Cooper when it was happening again, when um, Bob killed cousin Madeline in the first season. Uh, in, in the, sorry, it was in the second season, but in the first series. Um He's just having a nice jazzy night with his friend in a black and white universe. An alarm bell goes off and he goes to a his goes to his man cave, his screening room, sees that this bomb has gone off, sees that something that looks like Bob has been created, goes into some sort of otherworldly trance, births golden baubles out of his head. One of them appears to contain Laura Palmer's image, who is then kissed by the lady and sent into the world. Right. So you could make the supposition, which he does, that Laura is somehow a force of good that could defeat Bob. And let me just say, it is not outside of the realm of possibility, although it is not the point of this show, that what what David Lynch is doing with this 25-year-long game is undoing the damage done by the broken dead girl theory, you know, this that the, the most interesting sexy woman is dead in the first frame of a show, and saying that, in fact, Laura Palmer is the hero of the story. Right. The first thing we saw this season was was Cooper in the Lodge being told to find Laura again. So somehow this spirit it might come back and she might be she might be restored to primacy in her own story. All this is possible, but also none of that matters because yeah. look at what we saw. And also, let's just talk briefly about um, what he's doing. I don't know how much television David Lynch watched. <laughs> you know, I, very little. I, although I wouldn't be surprised to find out he really likes How I Met Your Mother. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, I am obsessed with his obsession with the 1950s as this era that both reflected the platonic ideal of American existence and the absolute nadir of it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like the idea that we could create a world destroying weapon and that there could be all this darkness underneath this veneer of cool diners and my prayer playing mm-hmm. over radios after on, on chased first dates mm-hmm. and mechanics and, you know, like this this vision of America where everything kind of just like was this beautiful gleaming machine and underneath is this disgusting rot, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I love I love that that has become more and more clear. And it, it's 
fascinating to me that he's still able to deal with like contemporary South Dakota or you know the vagaries of like the FBI, but that's still obviously the lens through which he views even the mm-hmm. modern world. Uh, so he, I don't know whether he watches television or not, but he has this motif that he's working in. But he also just decides to put a Nine Inch Nails performance in the middle of the episode. Yeah, I was going to say, if anyone came out of this episode thinking that there was a long, long, sonically adventurous shot that would take people, longtime fans, out of the show and say, I don't know if this is for me anymore, let me tell you something. It wasn't the bomb. It was the Nine Inch Nails performance for me. I, it's completely narratively un attached to anything that's happening. These performances are almost interludes. Yes. But this is an interlude before an incredible... It's almost... It was weird. It was like watching The O.C. before watching a Stan Brackage movie. You know, it was It was like, oh, okay, and now like the peach pit, and wait, now we're going to go inside of an, a nuclear explosion. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, overwhelming. I, I don't know what lessons people can take from this show because I don't want other people to make, here's a six-minute Mini no. crime drama. Now here's a music performance. Now here's an adventure no, into the solar know, system. You can't do this, right? But you are allowed to. I feel like those are the those are the two instructions you can walk away with from this. You know, and 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 the reason why I started our conversation by talking about the conventional things that might be here is to say that this is part of TV. This is part of everyone's responsibility as fans and in, you know investors in this medium or creators in this medium. You have to pay attention to this because look what you can do. Look what he's doing. It's just so exhilarating and deeply disturbing. I mean, the moment when Evil Cooper is shot and these woodsmen appear, like they they swarm and there's a silent scream. I mean, this is really, really unsettling to watch for me. And similarly, that that you know that the the main dude saying you know you got a light grabbing the microphone, crushing people's skulls until the black and white blood runs. The this weird frog bug birthed in the sand climbing into this sweet girl's mouth. I mean, what? I think that the first iteration of this show, the first two se- well, the first season especially, existed in this weird bubble where it was of this world but not of this world. Mm-hmm. This show, this series, this season feels almost disturbingly disturbingly of this world. Hmm. You know, the fact I think it's it's setting the north the South Dakota stuff especially, but even the idea that uh it's somewhat connected to the real happenings of this world that that we as human beings did something so uh anti-human mm-hmm. as to create something that could wipe us out. And that th- that's where evil has come from in some ways. Yeah, or we're that there's responsible a, for that it. We're responsible for it. It feels more the, deeply connected to... Our, think about that first episode, the, the desire to sit there and watch a box for yeah, something to happen. Yeah. What will happen to you if you watch it? Um, there, there's a... It's not a cynicism at all, but there is a warning in it that, yeah. I, think is, that I think is very clear. But I, I, I also just think it's worth saying one more time. Like, even in the first Twin Peaks, all the stuff about Dugpas and Project Blue Book and UFOs, I mean... Don't reduce this, and I, and I say this knowing the irony of saying this as we're doing a podcast about it, but the most boring version of this, has, of this show has always been, whether well, UFOs and evil spirits, you know, it, 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 every, you, any Easter eggy show can be reduced. The great ones transcend. You yeah. know, I, I, you mentioned Westworld. It's unfair to compare them, but my com- complaint about Westworld was always that it's, it wasn't more than the sum of its Easter eggs. Um, this is this is truly something, and, and don't overthink it. Like the Dougie stuff, is a, there's a good man trapped, you know. Like that's all that is. Yeah. And it's and yes, it's funny. 
it's supposed to be funny. Yeah. If you if you think it's going on too long or it's making you uncomfortable, okay. That's what art can do to you too, especially when you're seeing a master make something. Right. Um it's really exciting. And it's off this week, which I didn't know. It's yeah. taking off the holiday weekend. <laughs> Which maybe we all need a break. Yeah, but sure. I, it, so that just means there's even more weeks to come. There's well, what will be fascinating weeks. is when it does return is to, I think each of these episodes, with the exception of the Dougie plotline, which has been pretty consistent, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of stopping and starting with narrative threads. There's been a lot of stopping and starting with tones. So it'll be very interesting to see how much we continue. Like, we end with a bug crawling into a little girl's throat. So where do we go from there? <laughs> um, do we continue with this origin story, backstory? Do we jump back to South Dakota? Do we jump to Twin Peaks? Like, what happens next? I'm really excited to find out. We spent a lot of time talking about Twin Peaks. We can go into much more depth about Glow at some point down the line. But I did want to talk a little bit about this because for as sort of mind-breaking mm-hmm. and, and boundary-pushing as Twi- Twin Peaks is, Glow does everything that like good TV should do like it's it's it plays inside of a certain set of rules there are as uh, a, a very obvious development of a really good ensemble mm-hmm. but there's something about this show that is so like you've touched on just goddamn lovable it is so charming it is it does the little things so well the pilot is so well written and constructed the opening scene where Allison Bree is giving a monologue and they're like you did the man's part is so brilliant and so low-key brilliant. The casting, the direction, the look of it, it's not too 80s. The people that they got, the way they put it together, I'm really, I'm, I, I, I don't want to, it's weird to talk about it after Twin Peaks. I'm nearly as in awe of this show as I am the other yeah. in the way that it was done. S- sidebar here about this, I watched the first two episodes, was delighted and charmed. Um, my wife was away for a work trip. She came back. I said, do you mind? I want to watch the next two. So she sat with me. The first one she watches episode three, and I won't give much away, but episode three pushes things a little bit more extreme. There's a there's a, a robot butler. There's a little bit there's a there's a party. It's a little more 80s in some ways. It's the kind of episode where I bet people will look back on, although it works in a lot of ways. When the show is in season four or five, they'll be like, that was a weird one. Yeah, they were yeah. trying stuff out. She watched that. We went right into episode four. Episode four ends, and her only comment was, This is a really, really good TV show. Yeah. And it's not complicated. I'm, it, it's not that complicated. Here's one thing I love about this show is that it's basically about TV shows. It's in so much as they've taken it's not a sitcom, but they did a very smart thing where they have this arena, literally an arena mm-hmm. where there's a wrestling ring, and they have all these women who are actresses who are thinking about the part that they are as a human being as like a person as a working actress, but they're all also playing these mm-hmm. different roles, and they're all also peeling back layers of the onion to find out who they actually are. And like, there's this Mark Maron character who's sort of the empresario over this, who is also acting as like an acting coach and as a provocateur of their emotions. And then there are real relationships that are happening between Allison Brie and Betty Gilpin mm-hmm. and all these other characters who um, are, are kind of like. It's just this really fascinating, almost meta conversation about it. It's very economical for for the most part, guys. It's thirty minutes, and each it episode. all takes Thank place God. for the most part in one let, place. You know. Let me say the other thing: what they've done here. You know, the, the, when you pitch TV shows these days, like you need your hook, you need your gimmick, you need your poster, you need your in. You know, and often it's a pre-existing piece of IP. And yes, they used. There actually was a glow. I remember seeing it a couple times mm-hmm. on cable. But this, that's, this to me seems more like they wrote the show and then someone said, well, we could probably get the rights to it. And they said, great, we'll just put it on top to make it to keep it buttoned up and nice. I do not understand pro wrestling. I have never understood it. I've never liked it. I never got the appeal. I never watched it for a second more than I had to. What is astounding to me about the show is that within 
one or two episodes, I understood something that I had never understood before. What this show did with its female characters and the positions they put them in and the way life has put them and circumstance, and they're not victims, but just living in the world, the enormous physical and emotional empowerment of what wrestling could be for them is communicated to the audience. And all of a sudden, I'm in. I'm in. I yeah. get it. I got. I understood what was appealing about this world yeah. for these characters. The other thing about it is in the you know an ensemble – there is such a deep respect for the humanity of these people. There are no bad guys. It, that seems like writing lesson 101, but that's just not the shortcut that most people take when they write something. And we have to give a lot of credit to Liz Flahive and Carly Mensch, who yeah. are playwrights who worked on Orange is the New Black, and you can see some of that DNA here in this. The third thing, the performances are killer. Yeah, man. Let me say something. Can I do a quick sidebar about Marin? Sure. Marin is great on this show. Yeah. Let me say a quick sidebar about Marin. I'm a huge Marin fan. I listen to his podcast regularly. His voice and his point of view is in my ears frequently. I'm sure I'm not the only person. I'm sure many of our listeners do that as well. My only interaction with him was when I gave a middling review of his IFC show, Marin, uh, on Grandland, and he tweeted something. He said I was. Uh, he said I thought I was thinky or something. He thought it was a thinky review. I'm like, well, fair. <laughs> But what I said in that piece was something I still believe, which is that you don't have to be good at everything. It's very rare to be really good, exceptionally good at one thing. And I talked about how I often fast forward through his 12-minute monologues in the podcast because the humanity and empathy that he shows in his interviews is so incredible. And that's enough. You don't also need to be a sitcom star. You know, it doesn't also have to be a TV show. If people give you the opportunity, you want to try it, you get paid, whatever. But he's really good at one thing, and I didn't think he was as good at the other thing. So I still believe that. But turns out, he can be a really good actor. Yeah. He found something here. Obviously, the part appeals to him. But there is something, actually, about Alison Brie's performance, too, that reminds me of 70s cinema. Maybe that has more to do with the way they're shooting it and directing it. But they're just lived in, kind of. Very much so. And they're so. just feeling it. And they're just, they're very present. They're very, very, very well cast. So and well Alison Brie's opening scene in the pilot where yeah. she's auditioning for, like, a Dallas Knott's Landing type LA show. Law, yeah. And, uh... She starts talking about how, you know, it's really hard because they're, you know, these parts like this aren't really written for women. And they were like, yeah, you're reading the man's part, you know. And obviously, I, without reading too much into it, that is not, that is still the case. Yeah. You know, I mean, there, and, and shows like this go a long way towards changing stuff like that. But in those scenes where they're all interacting with each other, these, these actresses who are playing wrestlers or wrestlers who are also acting, and they're all talking about what they have to do to just kind of make it in Los Angeles. It's just, it's just a great show, it, man. I, I really it, like it. Think about the backflips for that character, the Ruth, her lead character. I mean, she's, the character is a actory actor who talks about mask work and clowning. Yes. I know, I know these people. yeah, right. She sleeps with her best friend's husband. She is not a hero, you know? She is, and yet, through performance and through careful, empathetic writing, she is a completely realized human that yeah. you can feel for. Also, Betty Gilpin is a star, and... You know, this one of those things where, like, give her the part. Give her the right part. Mm -hmm. Okay. She's great on American Gods. She's she's awesome on this. She says on her interview with Marin that she was not good on American Gods. Eh. She, she has a very funny anecdote about being on the set of American Gods. And everyone was, like, looking at the horizon going, Ugh. and she was going, whoopsie doodle. Like, what's that? <laughs> um, look, it, this show is going to run five or seven years, and that might not be a good thing. But it's got all the, it's got all the 
parts and pieces. Yeah, and it's, it's thrilling when you get to see it happen. Way to go, television. Good job, TV. You did it this week. Again. Good job by you, TV. If you made it this far, please come see me, Andy, Jason, Concepcion, and Mallory Rubin on July 11th at Largo for no, Talk the Thrones don't Live. Don't come see us. Let us see you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you can find out information about how to buy tickets through our Twitter accounts, through the Watch Twitter account, through the ringer.com. It's on SeatGeek. Just look up Largo, Game of Thrones. And uh, we'll be back on Thursday with a special guest. With a special guest. And we will have a interview for next Monday on on the July Fourth weekend. Obviously, won't be doing a like of the moment show. We'll have uh, a cool interview and uh, a music a music pod where we just ch- chat about some bands that we've been listening to. Making, yeah, we're gonna do another make you a barbecue playlist. Another barbecue playlist for all you Baranskis out there. You guys are the best. You're not as good as David Lynch or television, but you're still pretty good. Peace. Pretty good job, Baranski. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Spotify. Did you know that you can listen to The Watch and others from the Ringer fam on Spotify? Yes! The streaming service that you know and love for music is also fully loaded with podcasts. Find us in the podcast section within the Browse tab when you're using Spotify and mobile, or just search The Watch. While you're there, click to follow us. Have new episodes delivered right into your Spotify library. Head to spotify.com slash podcasts for more. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Things change, the weather changes, your mood changes. So why lock yourself into plans that might change? With Hotel Tonight, you don't have to, because you'll get incredible deals on awesome hotels, even at the last minute. Booking on Hotel Tonight gives you the freedom and flexibility to play things by ear while knowing you'll score a great price on a great place to stay. So download the Hotel Tonight app and find seriously amazing deals now.